It's not all that often that I do fiction on the morning show. It's more of a nonfiction program. But every so often, uh, a novel will cross my path that has some kind of compelling substance to it and the opportunity to talk about some interesting things. And that is proven to very much be the case with a new novel called Frank's Shadow. Uh, It's by a a writer by the name of Doug McIntyre, who is based in Los Angeles and has worked extensively uh, in radio, television, stage, film, uh, an experienced columnist for the Southern California News Group, which includes the Los Angeles Daily News. And uh, he has done work... uh, among other things, on a documentary called Trying to Get Good, The Jazzazacy of Jack Sheldon. This, I believe, is his first novel, Frank's Shadow, a deeply personal novel which has at its heart the intersection uh, between uh, uh, someone who has just passed away and the legendary Frank Sinatra, a connection between these two very different figures that is very, very intriguing as well. And uh, I am really excited to speak with uh, Doug McIntyre about his novel, Frank Shadow, which is published by Greenleaf. Doug McIntyre, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Greg, it's an absolute pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me on. You bet. Uh, One of the other reasons why uh, this pitch uh, attracted my attention and uh, and interest is because, as it so happens, I lost my dad to cancer just over a year ago. And so uh, it was intriguing to me to read a novel which uh, has at its heart a a character who has just lost his dad, albeit under different circumstances than I lost my dad. And and as it turns out, I'm very different from the protagonist in this novel, and my father (laughs) was very different from uh, this protagonist's father. But just the idea of thinking about loss and what we do in the midst of loss uh, was very attractive to me. And I have to say, your novel has not disappointed me one bit. It's a fascinating novel, and I'm really glad to talk with you about it. Uh, Can you just say a word about how this stacks up to all of the other writing that you have done in your uh, professional life? And is this indeed your first novel, and what did it feel like to embark on this kind of writing? Well, it is my first novel, and since it took me 25 years, literally 25 years from conception to the bookshelves, it's likely to be my last novel, or I'll be 160 when the next one comes out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but, you know, I've been a professional writer for 45 years, and uh, I, I always considered the novel to be sort of the, the pinnacle of writing, the greatest challenge, the greatest reward, and it's proven to be so because... You know, writing for television uh, has mostly, or film, has mostly been, um, you know, you're limited by the clock and you're limited by the technology available, whereas a novel you can go inside a character's head to to reveal their inner thoughts, which can be done successfully in film or television. It's very difficult to do. So that was the, uh, that was the great joy of doing it. Uh, I, I, this book was actually born... In 1998, the day that Frank Sinatra died, I should say the evening that Frank Sinatra was died, I had a good friend of mine whose dad died the exact same day and was approximately the same age as Sinatra. And it occurred to me that one death was satellite news ricocheting around the world and the other guy 
was in the back of the paper by the mattress ads and the racing results, and the family had to pay to put them there. And having worked uh, for many, many decades in Hollywood and with a lot of famous people, uh, it started as a meditation on the nature of celebrity itself and how we sort of value lives. Uh, and I conceived the idea of a of a young man, a 40-year-old history professor with his own problems, going home to bury his father and realizing he knows everything about the famous singer, but almost nothing about his own dad of substance, who was a sort of silent Sam, greatest generation, Irish immigrant, World War II vet. And he launches out to discover who his father really was, substantively. And I, and I think that there's a universality to that, um, because, uh, Greg, those of us uh, who, who grew up with those uh, less communicative parents, uh, I think that there's a relationship between children and parents that is, is fictitious in a lot of ways. As kids, we see our parents as these giant figures in our lives, because they are, and we have them up on pedestals. And as we age, we have to start to recognize their humanity, their warts and all, uh, reality of life. And, and parents who are handed these little babies and see them as perfect beings, as we age, they have to start to realize that their children have flaws too, that they're not all perfect little angels, that they have disappointments and failures and make mistakes. And it's wearing the math of that that I think is Danny McKenna's struggle in this book as he discovers who his father really was. Uh, he has to reconcile that. And I think that that's the universal truth that I was looking for. Absolutely. And it's interesting, uh, I'm not going to prattle on endlessly about my own dad and you know my loss, but uh, I do want to say that one thing that reading your book really helped me do is newly appreciate how my father was very different from the deceased father in your novel. I mean, uh, in in contrast to someone kind of taciturn, not prone to talk about himself to reveal too much. My my father, in addition to being a retired clergyman, was also a professional storyteller. And ah. most of his stories uh, were actually stories about his own life, in some cases a bit embellished. But but I felt like, and, and also the fact that uh, when we received the diagnosis of his terminal illness, those last several months were, if anything, a, a heightened experience of revelation of stories being told, of us asking questions and so on. Precisely the opposite situation of your protagonist and probably a whole lot of other people who, for various reasons, have never had that kind of connection with a parent that they have suddenly lost, and they realize that door has closed closed permanently, and there will be no more opportunities to ask them questions about who they were or what they believed or what they thought life was all about. Uh, I mean, it's really sobering to think about somebody who finds themselves in that kind of situation. Yeah, my father passed away while I was working on the book. And I, while I can't necessarily uh, pin the shaping of the, the novel on that event, it certainly heightened exactly that experience that you know, when they're gone, they're gone for good. And, you know, you're, I know that you, you have to consider yourself blessed that you had a father who was communicative, who was a storyteller, because even the embellished stories, in a way, offer an insight into who we are, uh, how, how people want to portray themselves 
is an indicator of who their inner life, what their inner life was really about. My lead character, uh, Danny McKenna, uh, has a dad, Francis Xavier McKenna, was an Irish immigrant, came over in 1929 and uh, ended up in World War II and experienced a trauma in World War II that he considered a great shame and hid from everybody. Uh, and as a result, when Danny discovers that, he has to wrestle with this new piece of information that recasts his father in a different light. Uh, and then ask the big question, would it have made any difference if he had told me? And I think for most of us, the answer is no. There are dads, there are moms, we love them anyway. But And, in, and how much easier Francis Xavier McKenna's life would have been had he been able to unburden himself to the people closest to him. And, and that's where the parallel life of Frank Sinatra comes in. Frank Sinatra is not really, it's not about Frank Sinatra, this book. Uh, he's one of the two Franks that casts a shadow because young Danny McKenna is a musical oddball. At 40 years of age in 1998, he should be listening to rock and roll. But the music of his life is the American songbook represented by the artistry of Frank Sinatra. And, uh, and Sinatra has his own secrets in life, and, uh, and, and he revealed his truths through the way he sang. In fact, actually said when asked why he didn't write an autobiography, he said, I can't sing in a book. And so he knew that his truth was most revealed when he was uh, standing in front of a band, in front of a microphone, in front of an audience. But uh, the Sinatra character in the book is just a parallel life. You know, we see this all the time, Greg. Even the, the submarine disaster, the submersible disaster that we all just experienced, uh, we covered it relentlessly in the media because it had a connection to the Titanic and it was inherently dramatic. But because of the Titanic connection, somehow it vaguely connected us to Leonardo DiCaprio. And yet we lose thousands of people a year who are trying to escape massive, horrific poverty on driftwood rafts going across the Mediterranean or coming across the Caribbean. And, and they're, they're invisible. Their lives are lost without us even noting them. And that's the value we seem to put on celebrity over oftentimes the people that we're, we're living with. Hmm. A last kind of overarching question before we probe a little further into the, the novel itself and the story you tell. Uh, I, I know there's a fancy word for it when at the outset of a book there's a quotation from somebody else, and you have two of them. Uh, one is uh, from uh, Emily Dickinson, but I want to ask you about the second one. Alan Sherman, you quote him as saying, Of all the people you are ever going to meet, you will know your mother and father the least. That's such an interesting thing to say, and I suspect you know there's some danger in making a a, a generalization like that. And I'm I'm sort of case number one of that. And yet I suspect that there really is some truth there. And you must think so too, if Alan Sherman's book uh, uh, words adorn the the first page of your novel. Tell us more about yes. why those words are here and the truth that you see in them. Well, it's interesting. I I had the. Uh... I had the first epigram uh, from day one, really. Fame is a fickle food served upon a shifting plate. Men eat of it and die by Emily Dickinson. And I do think that fame can destroy. It's a form of uh, a non-narcotic narcotic, if that makes sense, for a lot of people. Uh, but the other one I didn't stumble upon until very late in the process. Alan Sherman, the guy who sang Camp Granada, Hello, Mother, Hello, Father, not exactly the type of person you usually look for for literary quotes, 
But he, he wrote that, and when I read his biography, I realized he had a very, very troubled relationship with his own peculiar parents. Uh, and I think that there's some truth in that generally. And as I mentioned before, I think that our parents play the role of parents for many years in our lives because they want to set the proper example for us. And by doing so, they scrub the senior details of their own lives. They don't talk about when they had pimples, when they were nervous kids on their first teenage dates, when they may have been involved in some shenanigans that they don't want you to be involved in, but they themselves perform the same acts that they're now grounding you for. And as a result, it robs them of their humanity. And that's part of the past that children have to reconcile the humanity of our parents with the reality of them being your mom and dad. Uh, and I, I really think that the quicker you can get to squaring the math on that, the more open and the closer your relationship can be with your mom and dad. Hmm. We're speaking with Doug McIntyre, and we're talking about his novel, Frank's Shadow. Uh, Frank, uh, really, in the title, we're talking uh, probably primarily about the legendary singer Frank Sinatra. But uh, there is another important Frank in this novel, namely Francis Xavier Frank McKenna, uh, who has just passed away. And uh, it is one of his sons who is uh, reeling from that unexpected loss and uh, trying to contend with his mixed feelings about his father, a man that he feels like in many ways he scarcely knew and a man uh, for whom he must offer a eulogy at his upcoming funeral. And that's just uh, kind of the tip of the iceberg of a really interesting, complex uh, story. Uh, so, uh, Doug McIntyre, the very first chapter of the book is titled Last Dance. And uh, it, uh, it unfolds on April 26, 1994, uh, with the news that has just been announced that uh, Frank Sinatra has died. You have the character recalling... Uh, the experience that he had of seeing Frank Sinatra live in performance uh, just a few years earlier, and it was very definitely Frank Sinatra in decline. You describe this performance so vividly, so authentically. I have to ask, is that something that you ever experienced in person, or, or did you see some sort of footage of Frank Sinatra struggling through one of those latter life performances. Uh, where does this opening chapter come from? It is so intriguing. Well, it's one of the two uh, scenes in the book that are really almost journalism. Uh, Sinatra died on May 14th, 1998, which was the same night as the last episode of Seinfeld, by the way. Uh, and, uh, but on April 26th, 1998, I saw his last performance in New York City at Radio City Music Hall. Uh, it was a one-off. He, he had done a two-week run there and missed the show because of illness. And I happened to be in the city and scored a ticket in the second row. So I described it pretty much verbatim as I remember it. I wrote it down contemporaneously. So I had really good notes on it. Uh, so that's the opening. I just put my character in the seat as opposed to me being in the seat. Uh, and I found it poignant because everybody 
sort of intuitively knew that he was never going to be in New York City on stage again. And as it turns out, he wasn't. Uh, and he struggled through the show. Uh, but at one point, when disaster strikes and Sinatra lost the lyric to, uh, to Mac the Knife, he, he, the, he had giant teleprompters to, bring the word, to read the words, but he, he just couldn't find it. And the audience basically gave him a standing ovation in the middle of the song, and, and it moved him. You could see it. You could see his eyes enlarge. And then everything kicked in, and he finished the song brilliantly. And it was just this incredible emotional transaction between a person who virtually nobody in the audience ever met, but felt as if they had known their whole lives. Because any artist, Greg, or, and, and as, a, as a music person yourself, you'll understand this. If the music doesn't move the audience, then you fail. If a painting, if a poem, if a novel, if a comedian doesn't make you laugh, they have failed. And this is why I think many times you'll see people feel the loss of an entertainer very strongly. And we wonder, why in the world are people crying because Tina Turner died? Well, they didn't know Tina Turner, but they did know Tina Turner. She, her music moved them, was part of their lives. You know, Uncle Carl gets drunk at the Thanksgiving dinner table or makes rude jokes or asks you for money. Tina Turner brought joy into your life. Well, so as a result, uh, these, this last performance of Sinatra's at Radio City Music Hall was really the New Yorker's way of saying thank you for a lifetime connection that we've had, even if we never actually met. And, uh, and then Danny McKenna, my lead character, when he realizes his father is dead, on the same day that Frank Sinatra died, he wants to figure out what possible connection. And because he's a historian, he starts by telling the famous tale of John Adams and Thomas Jefferson dying on the exact same day, July 4th, 1826, the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. They had so much to do with creating. And, and, and the country believed that that simultaneous death of the two foundingists of the founding fathers had to mean something. It had a higher meaning that God had blessed the creation of America. And Danny wants to know, well, what possible connection could there be between Frank Sinatra and my father, Francis Xavier McKenna? And that's what he, that's a question, the sort of philosophic, emotional question that he strives to answer throughout the course of the story. Absolutely. And again, just to make sure people, our, our listeners understand you have Frank Sinatra and, uh, and Frank McKenna dying on the same day and being born on the same day, December 12th, 1915. So it, it seems like the most incredible of coincidences. And your main character, Danny, is desperate to find some kind of, of, of monumental connection between these two very, very... Uh, different men. And I have to say, uh, you know, maybe it's partly because I'm also a voice teacher and so on that, uh, and, and something of a performer. Uh, I, I sympathize with that elderly Frank Sinatra on stage and struggling and so on. And I think you write so beautifully about those adoring fans in the audience who, who see this. This is one of the things you say in that chapter, first chapter of Frank's shadow. Uh, in this moment where it all starts to kind of fall apart. You write, this was our fault. We were the ones still buying the tickets with unrealistic expectations. The ravages of all those late nights, all those tumblers of Jack Daniels, all the broad smokes and temper tantrums had collected their pound of flesh. 
Dean was dead. Sammy was dead. Count Basie was dead. JFK was dead. Ava was dead. Music was dead. Fans are enablers, so we forgave him. No, that's not right. We loved him even more. We knew and he knew this was it, his last performance in the city that loved him like no other. A little later, he was a ruin, but so is the Acropolis, and people still marvel at it. Well, I'm glad you, you targeted that line about the Acropolis is one of my personal favorite lines in the book, because I happen to be, have great affection for older performers. I mean, obviously, at my age, I should have grown up with rock and roll, and I did grow up with rock and roll. But as I mentioned earlier, the passion, the musical passion of my life was the songbook, the Irving Berlin's and the Gershwin's and the Cole Porter's and the Johnny Mercer's, those incredible songs that were written from basically the late 20s into the late 50s. But, uh, but I, you know, when older performers uh, don't have the same purity of voice, they don't have the same power that they have at the peak of their abilities, and Sinatra certainly did not at the end have the ability that he had in the 50s and the early to mid-60s. But he had a, a, a magnetism, a charisma, a history that was inherently dramatic. And, by the way, his frailty created its own weather system of tension in the room, and tension is very dramatic, in a, in a, whether it's in theater or in a film or whatever. So the concerts became sort of mini-dramas. Would he make it? Would he get through it? And sometimes he did, and sometimes he didn't. But we all knew that this was a, this was a, a cultural uh, his, historic event to be in the room with him a cross-generational thing where grandparents would take their grandchildren to these shows because someday their grandkids would be able to say, you know, I saw Sinatra live, which, you know, the more the years pile up, the more it sounds like you saw Jolson at the Winter Garden and you saw, you know, you saw, you know, Caruso or something. And if you're interested in the history of music or the history that connects the generations, these events are important. I think people... People certainly were flocking to Tony Bennett when he was still performing with the same thought in mind. Uh, although Bennett, much to his astonishing credit, had astonishing vocal powers right till his 95th birthday. I still can't figure out how he did that. Hmm. And uh, I'm, I'm reminded, uh, speaking of Caruso, uh, your, your line about the Acropolis is... Uh, in. Uh, echoes uh, something that somebody said about the great Maria Callas when she embarked on a uh, very ill-advised final concert tour uh, long after she'd retired from the opera stage, and and her voice is in tatters, and she's nothing close to what she had been, and yet adoring fans flocked. And one of those fans famously remarked uh, to whoever they were with, you're right. It's it's like the and named some kind of famous ruined painting. It's it's like that. The it it's a wreck of a picture, but the picture is the greatest picture in the world. <laughs> so even if it's you know in its substance not nearly what it was, it's like you have all of the memories of what it once was, and in that moment, it's it's almost enough. And this is what we do with our with our parents. When our parents are gone, we 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 remember when they were at the peak of their skills. I mean, even if you have a long protracted exit from this life and you deal with an elderly 
parent who fades, that becomes a sweet memory, too, because you had the time to say goodbye. So human, human life is complex, and our feelings, we have logic and we have feelings, and they get intermingled, and sometimes we struggle to separate the two, and sometimes we revel in the two, the fact that they are intertwined, and hopefully that will be the takeaway for folks who read Frank Shadow. Hmm. So you have your main character of Danny McKenna saddled with the responsibility of delivering the eulogy at his father's funeral. And uh, uh, he is thinking, uh, as you uh, share it with us, I accept my assignment with genuine reservations. My attempt to duck dad's eulogy is not based on humility. I am the most qualified, that is, if it were a eulogy for anyone other than my father. Here's what I can't tell them, what I'm ashamed to admit. I have no more idea what to say about Francis McKenna than I would if asked to give the eulogy for the Haitian busboy who is scraping breadcrumbs off our tablecloth with a plastic pocket comb. And it's so interesting to, to think about somebody being in that situation. I mean, it's scary enough to deliver a eulogy for your own father's funeral, but scarier still when you feel like you don't know who this man really was. Well, my character is the youngest in the family, and his father was 42 when he was born. So he did not experience a young dad the way his older brothers did. And, uh, and because of the nature of his father being the silent Sam that he was, he wasn't particularly communicative. So Danny knows, he knows some dry facts about his father. He has, he has snippets of, of, of stories. But he also uh, is a, maybe an overthinker, and he wants to probe deeper. I mean, he certainly can get up there and give a sort of boilerplate eulogy the way so many of us uh, do or receive when our time comes. Uh, and we've all been at uh, funeral services when the minister, through no fault of his own, is tasked with performing a funeral service for somebody who he never met and has to sort of keep his comments, his or her comments, on a generic plane. Uh, but Danny wants to go deeper. He wants it to be substantive. He wants it to be re- revelatory. But he can't do that because he doesn't feel like he has that information, that he has that insight into his dad. So, and that's, But that's really a reflection more on his character than on anybody else, because I think his other brothers, had they been asked to do the eulogy, would have been happy to say, my father was born in Ireland in 1915 and came to this country and lived his life and fought for the country, and he would have just checked the boxes. Danny wants to have some keen insight, uh, and of course that's what he goes and actually discovers. I don't know that you want to necessarily maybe reveal this, but um, I think we should at least mention in a vague fashion that something kind of shocking, very shocking happens at, I guess we'd call it the visitation, where people are coming and the the casket is right there, and uh, somebody comes, a stranger comes, and does something which is shocking and horrifying. Um, I'll, I'll let you tell our listeners what that is if you want to, but otherwise, I just want you to talk about that sort of moment of realization uh, when Danny and his brothers realized that their father had done something to 
inspire what seems to be out-and-out hatred from this stranger who has suddenly arrived. And it's really interesting to think about something like that occurring that, in a sense, totally reshapes our ideas about who this who this dearly departed deceased person is or was. Uh, did anything in particular inspire you to create this dramatic moment in the, in the novel? Uh Actually, no. Uh, this is one of those, you know, fortunate, you know, blips of the brain that, as a writer, occasionally you come up with an idea that, wow, I don't think I've ever seen that before in a story. And uh, I, I wanted to have an incident that would uh, be a mystery to everybody that Danny McKenna would then have to solve about his father. So, and I don't, I don't think it ruins the experience for anybody out there who wants to read the book. But at the wake. It's an open casket, and uh, an elderly World War II era veteran comes in wearing his, you know, garrison hat, and 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 they're all expecting him to snap a salute. Uh, they don't know who this elderly person is, but clearly another World War II veteran uh, here to say goodbye to a fallen comrade. And instead, he spits in his, in their father's face in the casket, and 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 they're totally shocked. I mean, completely stunned by this. And they can't, for the life of them, figure out what they couldn't conceive that their father could be responsible for such hatred that uh, that, that that someone would do something like that uh, because they, you know, and this is what the, you know that Danny talks about. Frank Sinatra was loved and hated. Frank Frank Sinatra uh, it certainly had fans, but he also had people who didn't like him. Uh, but they couldn't see, conceive that their father, their father didn't have fans. He had family who loved him, and that was enough for him. But they couldn't conceive that he was could be responsible for the opposite side of love, which is hatred. Hmm. Uh, and that's that's certainly what kicks off uh, the quest to uncover what was that about, and that ultimately will lead Danny to discover who his father really was. Right. And of course, one thing that's also intriguing about your novel is that it is set in the mid-1990s, just ahead of most of us being able to hop on the internet and uh, conduct such a search with uh, the kind of tools that have now become almost commonplace. I mean, this is a search that has to be done in libraries and archives and with microfilm and microfiche. And that's, I mean, the way once, one once upon a time would conduct a search like that. And uh, that's a really intriguing aspect of this story, I think, as well. Uh, Greg, I'm so glad you, you, you grabbed onto that because it's one of the things that was the most surprising you know, again, I started the book in 1998, so I was writing it contemporaneously, and then it sat for a long, long time because I didn't know what the family secret was. I didn't know what Francis Xavier McKenna's everything I tried to come up with was either awful or stolen or both. And then, uh, so it sat for many, many years until I finally was reading something else, and the light bulb went off. I go, oh, now I know how to do it. But in the meantime, the world changed because we had social media was born, Google was born. Uh, so all of these things that you can do in five seconds with a, with a URL, uh, uh, on your, uh, you can do it on your phone were things that used to require, uh, going to the library or taking a subway to take a boat out to Ellis Island to go through the immigration records. Uh, 
And you needed the skill of an historian to track down documents from archives. And so in a way, uh, you know, Danny becomes a sort of, you know, hungover detective, you know, uh, using his skills as an historian to go research his own father's past to America and to find out, well, what ship did he come over on? And, you know, where did, where did he go when he got to America in 1929? What path did he follow? All of those things you could do very quickly today. Uh, but, but back in 1998, doesn't seem that long ago, but it's a world away. Hmm. Well, that's just one of the compelling facets of your really wonderful novel, which is, again, titled Frank's Shadow, published by Greenleaf Book Group and uh, the author Doug McIntyre. Doug McIntyre, congratulations on a really fantastic novel. I'm glad that after its long gestation, it is finally here. I have enjoyed it very, very much and also enjoyed talking with you about it. Thank you so much. Well, Greg, thanks so much. It was a a total pleasure, and I really appreciate your giving me the time.